But we have been saying that for a follower of Jesus, if you're in the room, and I know not everybody in the room is a follower of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, we've been saying that the way of change, the way we change, is inviting the presence of Jesus into our everyday life through different practices, different patterns, different rhythms, and different habits. John uh, 15, verses 5 and 8, Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As we talk about this idea of being a disciple, of following Jesus, of practicing the way of Jesus, what we're talking about is these different practices of abiding in him and abiding with him. It's, re- it's really clear as we have these conversations, we've been saying this every week, that what we are talking about as we talk about these different practices and these, this way of change, we are not talking about ways that you can get God to like you. We're not talking about how we get to heaven. We're not talking about if you do these things, you can bear fruit of your own power in your own life if you do these things. And we're not talking about different works that we do of righteousness to gain God's favor. That's not what we're talking about. All of those things we believe Christ has accomplished on our behalf. That Jesus came with the perfect life, died in our place, that we might be welcome to the Father, that we might be able to commune and have relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. It's so important that we start there or else what you'll hear is what we're talking about as a way to get God to accept you when he only accepts us because of what Christ has done in our place. But by these things, what we're doing is that we're abiding in the vine, right? We're tying our lives, our habits, our rhythms to Jesus that we might let the spirit work through us and bear his fruit in our lives. And so we've been looking at different practices, right? Over the last couple of weeks, we're gonna keep this conversation going. We've been, so the first week we looked at silence. We looked at how we see in the life of Christ, we see Jesus withdrawing to these quiet places to be with the Father, not just to have some hymn time, not to full laundry, but to be with God in the stillness and the silence to, to commune with God, right? We talked about that. We live in such a busy, noisy, crazy society that that idea seems a little foreign, but so important to practicing uh, the presence of Jesus. The next week, we looked at the other side of that coin with community, that while Jesus withdrew in silence and solitude, he spent most of his life with people. He had a big community, a close community, and a very close community that we oftentimes in our Western culture think that we can just follow Jesus on our own and just do me and Jesus, do our own thing, you know, watch some, some preacher online and listen to the Hillsong album and do church. And that's not what we see in the scriptures, Right? We see that following Jesus happens in community. Then last week, we looked at a practice that is probably the most foreign to our our society, and that is the the practice of fasting, right? We talked about this idea of fasting on Super Bowl Sunday of all weeks, right? We talked about it. And what we talked about, what Dan talked about, was that it's almost this idea that inside of us all, the Bible refers to it as the flesh. It's almost like the cookie monster, right? That we want to eat. We want to gratify these desires all the time. And what fasting is, is simply saying, I, for a certain period of time, a specific thing, want to say no to this thing that I might focus on Jesus as I abstain from that thing. It's, it's an it's a awesome practice. If you weren't here last week, challenge you to go check it out. But today, what we're doing is we're looking at the other side of the coin of fasting. If on one side of the coin is fasting, we want to look at the spiritual practice this morning of feasting. And you're like, what's he going to talk about, Right? I can tell you, we're going to talk about feasting. Everybody's like, I'm not sure what this is going to be about, but I'm here for it because it sounds like my kind of sermon. A guy in the parking lot said, hey, 
I like feasting more than fasting. It was funny. All right, but we are going to dive into this today. As I was thinking and preparing for this, I think about how we all in our culture love feasting, right? Like I was thinking about some close friends of mine were the first kind of close friends to get married like seven or eight years ago. Mike and Katie had their wedding and it was a very exciting time because it was the first of our close friends to get married and her family's pretty Italian. So it was like a week long event. It was great. They got married 4th of July weekend. Uh, and uh, they got married on a Friday, but the party started Wednesday. Friends were in from town. We set up this big tent in Father the Bride's backyard, and we ate, and we celebrated with friends, and we were excited for this wedding that was coming. Great time together. The next day was 4th of July, and we were going to have more partying, right? We had the rehearsal dinner, 4th of July, so we went to the, the church, kind of did the run-through. I was a groomsman, so you really just pay attention to the person in front of you. Doesn't really concern you too much. Went back to Father the Bride's house, had the tent in the backyard, eight, 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 and eight. Rehearsal dinner. Great time, right? Next day is the wedding. We get the wedding over with so we can get to the reception, and we get to the reception, and we dance, and we eat, and we dance, and we eat, and we eat, and we dance, and we eat so that we can dance more. And it was a great time together. You know, you go to a wedding, have a great time. We danced so late into the night that we needed to order more pizzas to fuel us up. So we ordered more pizzas and continued to feast together, no lie, into the night. Next day was Saturday, so we took all the extra food back to Father the Bride's house, under the tent, open presents. There was a bouncy house there, and we continued to eat and celebrate together. I am still burning calories off from that wedding seven years ago. We all, we all love to celebrate and to feast together. Weddings, holidays, birthdays, barbecues as people. We love sitting and savoring the beauty of life together around the table. We know it's true, right? And in the scriptures, it's so important that we see that because sometimes we don't see a clear picture of God the Father. In the scriptures, we see a God who expresses his heart through the joy, the community, the fellowship, the celebration of feasting together around the table. You don't believe me. That's fine. I will prove it to you. We'll begin in the Old Testament, right? We see that God puts Adam and Eve, he puts them in the garden. And he says, you can eat from any tree. It's like a giant salad. Go eat from any tree you want, right? Just not that tree. If you know the story, they ate from that tree. Any tree in the garden, right? It begins with this feast. We see in the Old Testament, God delivers his people from slavery. His people are in slavery in Egypt to Pharaoh and God delivers them uh, from slavery, brings them to the foot of a mountain and he gives them this law for how they're to live, how they're supposed to worship him, how they're supposed to interact with one another, how they're supposed to, all these different rituals of purity, all these different things. And in there, he gives them instruction, a law, a requirement that you guys must celebrate these feasts and festivals to remember how I've delivered you, to remember how I saved you from the hands of the Egyptians. He gave them as part of their law, these celebrations and festivals. Some of them are week long, right? We could see God's heart in this, that there was over seven festivals that the Jews would have celebrated. In Psalm 23, famous Psalm, we see that he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. He gets the New Testament, to the Gospels. Jesus comes on the scene. And we see Jesus feasting with everybody, right? We see him eating with all kinds of people, so much so that people say, here is a glutton, a glutton and a drunkard, right? They say that about Jesus because of how much he ate with people. 
His first miracle was turning uh, water into wine at a wedding banquet, right? His first miracle he did of all things was made wine, right? Jesus feeds 5,000 people. You turn the page, 4,000, right? And he started with less food than he ended with. There's a lot more to eat when he was done feeding everybody than when the party started. He eats with his friends. We see him eating at the house of Martha and Mary. He sits down to eat with the Pharisees and there's an unexpected guest. One of the most famous uh, parables of Jesus is the parable of of the prodigal son, right? The story where the the son denies his father, takes his inheritance and goes and lives the luxuries of this world, right? Rejects his father and goes and lives his life. But when those things run dry, as we know they do, he comes back to his father, right? Kind of creeps back in, hoping he can just eat some slop from the pigs, get a little bit of food at the servant's table. Yet the father invites him back in with a feast, kills the fattened calf, has a big party for the return of his son on the last night on earth. Jesus sits around the table with his 12 disciples, eats a meal with them, sings a hymn with them, washes their feet, and then tells them how he is going to go die and wants them to remember this by breaking bread together. He resurrects, and he's walking down the road with these two disciples, and he continues to tell these disciples how the entire Bible is all about him. And then he goes to their house and eats together. He appears to the 12 disciples on the side of a lake and he cooks up a couple perch. He makes some fish on the side of a lake together. The church starts in the book of Acts. Early on in Acts, Acts 2 verse 46, we see they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor with all people. We see early on, one of the first things that the church had to figure out, one of the first problems they had to wrestle together was that some people who were followers of Jesus, followers of the way, came from this Jewish background where they had all these different food laws and and then other people were Gentiles. They didn't have these food laws and they had to figure out how do we eat together? How do we sit at the table together with these different backgrounds? The whole story story of the Bible is a story of redemption, of creation. And then we sin and there's this fall and we see the story of redemption. It ends with restoration where God will make all things new. And in the midst of that story, we see that there is a feast, right? That God has the marriage supper of the lamb with his people in eternity. Ladies and gentlemen, Our God loves a good feast, amen. I was trying to get us to be at amen church. If it's not gonna happen, that's okay. We don't don't have to do it. Anyways, today, as we we dive into this, I simply wanna look at the practice of Jesus and look at how he feasted with others, right? And I just wanna ask a few questions about how that looks in our own lives. Because all through the gospels, we see Jesus around the table with all kinds of different people. As we're going through this series and we're talking about these different practices, I challenge you, Follow along with us through one of the gospels and see these different patterns of Jesus, these ways that he lived. He's always eating with people. He's always with people. And I think it's important to look at who it is that he's eating with, who Jesus sits at the table with. And so I want to ask that first question today. Who did he feast with? We aren't going to jump right in this uh, today, but, but we see Jesus feasting with all kinds of people, and we do see him eating with, with his friends and with his disciples. He said he eats with Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and he, has to, he eats with his disciples. Jesus was a Jew. He would have celebrated these, these feasts together that God instructed. We see him eating with his community, but we're not going there today. We kind of looked at community a couple weeks ago. What I want to look at today, what made Jesus kind of an anomaly what made him uncomfortable to the religious elite at the time, and what made him a spectacle for many people was the people that he chose to eat with that were very, very unlikely. The people that he chose to eat with who made people mad. The people that he chose to to eat with that kind of shapes the way we see Jesus and would have shaken the way that they saw Jesus at the time. And I want to look at three dinners. Three 
dinners of Jesus today we're going to look at. The first, we're going to look at Luke 5. We'll put this up on the screen. If you guys have your Bible, we're going to be kind of flipping and flopping all through the book of Luke. So you can flip and flop with me. We'll start in Luke chapter 5. This is towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he begins on earth. And I want to look at these three, the first of uh, these three meals. So you guys can read along on the screens. Uh, Luke 5, start at verse 27. After this, after what? Pause right there. Jesus heals the man who's paralyzed and then says that his sins are forgiven, which ticks the Pharisees off. The Pharisees are these religious guys, these guys who think they've got high status and power because of how holy and perfect of lives they live. And they kind of are Jesus's kind of uh, enemies all throughout the story of the gospels. We see them kind of throwing shade at Jesus and asking questions are always kind of around challenging Jesus and Jesus is challenging them. And so right away after this, after what Jesus heals this man and says his sins are forgiven, which to them would have been blasphemous because only God can forgive sins. So after that, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. It's fascinating. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? That they were thrown off. They were confused. They were almost offended at who Jesus decided to eat with. That it, we, some of you may be familiar with this passage, may have read it a thousand times, maybe you, you've heard it for the first time today, whatever that is. But what is so interesting is that it wasn't that Jesus decided to eat with some sketchy individuals, but he decided to eat with people who were unclean. The Pharisees would have seen these people as unclean, would have seen the food as unclean. By going and sitting at the table with the people in this culture, it would have been saying that Jesus accepts their way of life and the Pharisees are offended by this, right? That this guy went and said he forgave sins and now he's eating with these people, Right? It's blasphemy. And he's not just eating with riffraff, but he's eating with tax collectors. And you may, have, you may have heard this before, but these tax collectors were bad fellas. They didn't just smoke cigarettes and watch R-rated movies. That wasn't what they did. They were bullies. They were terrible. They were, they were Jews who would sell themselves out to the Roman government. They would go and work for the Roman government to make money. And what they would do is if Rome said, hey, our tax rate is 3%, they would take 15%. And they'd keep the extra for themselves. As I was studying for this, I'd read that small villages, if they didn't have a good crop and they heard that a tax collector was coming, they would up and move their village because they couldn't withstand what the tax collectors were going to take from them. That the tax collectors would search you, they would take stuff like customs and all these different types of things. That they were bullies. They weren't just sketchy guys, but they were bullies to the Jewish people and to the people in the area. And Jesus calls this tax collector to come follow him as a disciple. And then this tax collector throws a banquet with all of his sinners and tax collector friends and Jesus and his disciples are there. Can you see the room of all the disciples are like, I'm not sure if we're supposed to be here, but we're following him and he's here and these chicken nuggets are great, right? And the Pharisees are angry at what's going on. But it starts to shape the people that Jesus ate with. It's interesting. We're gonna flip to Luke 19. So here the beautiful page is turning. We'll throw it up on the screen. Luke 19, there's another dinner, dinner party of Jesus. You may have heard this story before, the story of Zacchaeus. Verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. Throw it on the screens. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man there by the name of Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He was wealthy because he was chief tax collector and he stole money from all the other Jews who he would have known, right? 
Verse three, he wanted to see Jesus, but because he was so short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Verse five, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed Jesus gladly. All the people, look at this, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. You may know the story of Zacchaeus and so often we read the story and we almost read it like Jesus is mad at Zacchaeus, right? Like, hey, get out of that tree and welcome me to dinner. Prepare room for me and my friends, right? Like we always read it like he's mad. But I don't know if Jesus is mad, but he sees Zacchaeus. So I imagine if you're a tax collector and you're ripping people off all day that you would have all this wealth, but it's somewhere deep inside you, you'd feel a little scummy, right? That you knew what you were doing and this is how you made your living and you were rich and you had all this stuff, but inside there was still an emptiness. Sound familiar like anybody else? But that Zacchaeus was pursuing Jesus. There was something that he wanted to see. He had to see Jesus. And Jesus saw Zacchaeus' fervor for himself and said, I'm coming to your house These two instances, we see Jesus dining and feasting with people that would have been unlikely, unexpected, unconventional, offensive, right? But these stories, we get used to these, they paint a picture for us, but at the time, it would have have perplexed these guys, right? But for us as disciples and followers of Jesus, I want us to look in and see what do we pull from this, that we look at the who, but I want us to look at the why. Why did Jesus dine with these guys? Were their parties better? Probably right? Why? Did he just want some friends to hang out with and he thought these guys were cool? Like, why did he go? We guys don't have to flip here. We'll put it on the screens, but back to the first story of the tax collectors and the sinners at the banquet with Levi, that the Pharisees were like, why do you eat with these guys? And Jesus responds, he says, why? Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. Jesus says, this is the why. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. He has come to call those who no one was going to call. Nobody was going to call a tax collector. No one was going to reach out to a tax collector. They were bullies. They were scum. But yet Jesus made a way to them and changed their hearts. He saw their need for grace, for mercy, for abundant life that was found in him. And he extended grace to them, extended himself to them. Look at what happens after his encounter with Zacchaeus, after he invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house and people get grumpy about it. Look at what he says, verse eight. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And this is the why, verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That Jesus, in an unexpected way, he feasted with outsiders because Jesus came for outsiders. As we keep going, we'll look at who that is. The heart of God, we see in these passages, for all people, his original purpose was for Abraham that all would be blessed through the line, through Abraham. And Jesus was fulfilling this. We see it when Jesus sits at the table with these sinners, with these tax collectors, he is extending the kingdom of God one meal at a time, right? 
that he was showing that God's kingdom, that God's way, that the economy of God is different than what we expect. It's different than the way that our minds and our economy and our kingdoms work. He was offering a seat at the table to those who no one would have offered a seat to. And look how it changed him. You see, Levi becomes one of, one of Jesus's, Matthew is his other name, becomes one of his main disciples in the gospel of Matthew, right? We see that Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus in response to Jesus moving towards him, gives away half of his stuff, pays back people four times what he stole from them. We see that Jesus's kindness led them to repentance, right? We see their life changed because of the grace of Jesus, because of him welcoming them that his kindness led to repentance. Paul says that it's the love of Christ that leads us to repentance. You see that in Romans. But there's a link between these feasts of Jesus, these dinner parties of Jesus, and how I think you and I as followers of Jesus are called to play this out in our lives. And there's a third dinner that I want to look at. Dinner number three for the day, where we see Jesus interacting in a different way. He sits down this time, not with tax collectors, not with sinners, but he sits down with the Pharisees, the guys who've kind of been tracking him, who've been pushing on him, who've been challenging him. He sits down with them and he has an interesting meal. We can flip to Luke 14. We'll throw it up on the screen if you don't want to flip around. That's totally fine. But Luke 14, we see Jesus being a dinner guest at the Pharisee's house, right? And it's an interesting, interesting uh, stream of events. He first comes in and there's, there's a person who needs healed, but it's the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees are kind of trying to set him up. Is he going to heal on the Sabbath? Because you're not supposed to heal on that holy day. And Jesus does, and he pushes back on the Pharisees. And then they're all eaten together. There's all these different Pharisees, all these different guys with some good status. And the thing about these religious rulers, these Pharisees, is that they loved attention. They loved for people to see them and see how noble they were and how honorable they were, how holy they were. They loved that. We see that all through the scriptures. It says when they're in in synagogues or in the marketplace, they love to have that attention, right? And so when they would sit at a feast together, where you sat at the table kind of dictated your your importance or your honor, right? And so all these people are sitting at this table and Jesus kind of looks around and he starts to challenge them on that. He tells the story and he says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And Jesus probably makes the room pretty awkward, Right? Like all these guys are sitting there and Jesus is like, you know, all you guys taking the nice seats, you're going to be humbled. And they're probably, it's probably uncomfortable, right? We've all had that person over for dinner that's like, when are they getting out of here, right? Well, you know, we got to get to bed. You better get out. Like that's probably how they felt with Jesus, right? And then look at verse 12. Jesus looks at the host of the dinner. The host of the dinner. This is where I want to go. Verse 12. He says to the host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." You can almost feel the awkwardness in the room, right? Jesus looks at the host who just invited all of his friends and rich neighbors and people who were, who were high of status. And he's like, next time you give a party, don't invite these people. Invite people that can't pay you back. At that time, as people of those different conditions wouldn't have been able to pay back these guys of this honor. It's like an awkward room, right? Like, has anybody ever had you over for dinner? And you're like, next time you should invite these people, not us. Thanks for the loaf. Like, that, it would, that's not, it's awkward, Right? Jesus is pushing on this and almost out of the awkwardness, you can almost hear this guy, verse 15 says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. 
almost trying to like, yeah, that kingdom, we should invite them. Whoever goes there, blessed are they, because obviously all of us who are at this dinner are going to get to go, right? Because about how holy we are. And then Jesus tells another story. They're like, oh man, he's going again. Look at verse 16. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who've been invited, come, everything is now ready. The, the master of the banquet has this party ready. He sends out a servant, go tell him the party is ready. And look what happens. The servant goes out, verse 18. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I'm not gonna be able to make it. Please excuse me. The second one said, I just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm not gonna be able to make it. Please excuse me. The third one said, I just got married. You know how that goes. The old lady can't make it. I'll see you later. Verse 21. The servant came back and reported this to the master. And the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets, in the alleys, in the town, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master said, go out, go out into the roads, the country lanes, and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. This is such an interesting dinner. Remember who Jesus is sitting with. He's sitting with all these religious guys and he, he flips the script on them, right? He, he kind of is reframing for them the who and the why behind why they feast. He says the who, that this feast is not just for friends and your buddies and those who can pay you back and rich neighbors, but those who are lowly, those are, who are in need, those who can't pay you back, invite them. Now as a side note, I don't think Jesus says you shouldn't ever eat with your friends and your family. We see Jesus eating with his friends and his family, right? But he's pushing in this situation on why they're there. They're there for their status and to show how holy they are. And Jesus is flipping the script saying, no, 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 invite these people, not these people, right? He changes the who. He changes the why. We don't have these for honor and for status and for entertainment and to, to kind of flaunt how great we are, but for welcome of those who haven't been invited that he's pushing on these Pharisees and he's flipping the script. What's so interesting in this story is that when the master tells his servants to go out and bring these people in, compel them to come in, he doesn't invite them. He doesn't say, go out and invite some more people because an invitation would have meant that they had to return the favor and these people he was inviting from the streets and from the alleys and from the faraway country roads, they wouldn't have been able to return the favor. They wouldn't have been able to return the favor of what the guest was asking. So he says, bring them in, compel them to come. He uses different language, right? That these who have nothing to offer, no status, are brought in and compelled to come eat so that the master's house is full. Jesus is challenging the Pharisees and giving us a picture of God's table in eternity and what that looks like. These guys who were there thought that they were there because they were so great. They for sure were gonna be in the kingdom at that feast. Yet Jesus flips the script on them, right? It's such a beautiful picture of what the gospel is, the radical nature of the gospel, that we who have nothing to offer the host that we have no way to return the favor, that we have nothing in and of ourselves that would accomplish what needs accomplished, that we are invited in, that in our sin, in our separation, in our spiritual bankruptcy, that we have no way to return the favor to the host. Yet God, while we were still sinners, died for us, brought us in. His love compels us, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that the love of Christ compels us in. I love in Romans 15, seven, Paul says, accept one another 
just as Christ has accepted you. I love that, that the gospel is that we are invited to the table, not because we can give back. That's why this whole conversation about practices isn't about things we can do to earn God's favor, but it's a response to that, right? That our lives flow over from being invited in, being brought in, being compelled into the feast of the Father and having a seat at the table, that our lives overflow with that same grace, right? But we have to be careful that we ourselves don't become Pharisees. We see this all the time in church, right? That we're like, amazing grace. I'm so God that I'm so glad that God has brought me in with his grace and his love. But why is this guy at the table? He needs to go. I don't like that he's at the table, right? That we can so quickly become a Pharisee. We can so quickly kind of puff ourselves up, like our place at the table, feel pretty good about ourselves and forget about those who Christ says to bring in, right? So what does this practically look like for the follower of Jesus? So we look at these three feasts, these three interactions with Jesus at these different dinners. What does this mean for us as followers of Jesus? How do we practice feasting in our day-to-day lives, right? As I was preparing for this week, guys, I'm excited for this. This has been something that I have not necessarily thought of as a practice, but as I've been studying and prepping for this, it's kind of shifted my perspective on things. So the question, what does is, what is the practice of feasting practically look like for the follower of Jesus? Rosaria Butterfield writes that it looks like radically ordinary hospitality. That practicing this in our own lives, practicing this feasting in the way of Christ looks like radically ordinary hospitality. I want to unpack this for just 10 minutes and we'll pray and go eat. Go feast together. <laughs> See what we did there? I love this. Pastor Tony at, at our Medina campus, he kind of coined this term gospitality. And I love that term. It's almost this gospel-centered hospitality, right? Kind of a response to us being brought in. Kind of a response to the beauty of the gospel is extending it in the same way. It's gospitality. Christina Pohl in her book, Making Room, says, Hospitality is a lens through which we can read and understand much of the gospel in a practice by which we can welcome Jesus himself. What do you think of when you think of hospitality? Don't answer out loud. I never know how to respond to that when someone answers out loud. But how do we, what do you think of when you think of hospitality? You think of your friend that's a great cook, has a spare room, an extra parking spot, has a little Betty Crocker book, a little apple cinnamon candle. I was talking to somebody, we're like, no one lights candles. Only when people are coming over, we're like, put that candle out there. It's got to smell good here. Usually it smells like baby things, but now it smells like fruit, right? What do you think of when you think of hospitality? That we think of like, oh, my friend who can cook and that person who can bake, that person who's got the space, like those are hospitable people. And as we look at this, I'm challenged by this, that hospitality is different than entertainment. Not that entertainment's bad, but it's not like those people can be hospitable. Those people got the means to entertain. We just go and be entertained. Like that's, it's a different thing, right? It's a different thing. Hospitality is different than entertainment. In the Greek, in the Old Testament, the word for hospitality is actually this word philozenia. Philo is kind of this brotherly love. And xenia is stranger. It's this love of the stranger, right? Philozenia, love of the stranger is the word we see in the New Testament for hospitality, which is different than a word we hear today, xenophobia, the fear of the stranger, right? It's a different thing. I love that picture. And this idea of hospitality, of this love of stranger has always been God's heart. 
This isn't like some new development. When God was, I said like the Old Testament, when he rescues those people, rescues the Israelites from bondage, he brings them and he makes them a people. The book of Leviticus, read it. It's a great 20 minute read. You'll love it. That was a joke. The book of Leviticus is a lot of sacrifices and confusing things in there. But in the midst of that book, when God is giving some instructions to his people, he tells them this, Leviticus 19.34, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. We talked about how God delivered his people from bondage and slavery in Egypt, right? And he delivers them and he makes them into his people. And as he's giving them instructions, he tells them, to the foreigner residing among you, you must be treated as a native born. Love them as yourself, for that's what the Bible says too, so do it. Do it because I said so. No, it says, do it because you yourselves were foreigners. You yourselves know what it feels like to be distant and to be in slavery and to be separated from home and God. You know what that's like. But you've been brought in. I have delivered you. So now treat people the way that I have brought you and treat them in the same way. Show the love that I've shown to you, right? And I love the way he ends. He doesn't say like, if you could do that, that'd be great. He doesn't say like, so give it a shot. He says, I am the Lord your God, right? Like stamp of authority, invite him in because I'm God. And I said so, right? It's this beautiful picture. It's this powerful picture. Hebrews 13, New Testament. We see, it says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it see this theme all through scripture. In her book, Making Room, as I mentioned, Christina Pohl, she says this. I think this is important. I want to throw it up on the screen. It says, for most of the history of the church, hospitality was understood to encompass physical, social, and spiritual dimensions of human existence and relationships. It meant response to the physical needs of strangers for food, shelter, and protection, but also a recognition of their worth and common humanity. In almost every case, hospitality involved shared meals. Historically, table fellowship was an important way of recognizing the equal value and dignity of persons. I love this. Even a superficial review of the first 17 centuries of church history. If you look at church history and you look kind of back at at the history of the church throughout the ages, it reveals the importance of hospitality to the spread of, in the credibility of the gospel, that hospitality, as you look at church history, gave credibility to the gospel. I love that. What Jesus did when he sat with tax collectors, when he invited in the foreigner, when he befriended the ones who were unlikely, was that he saw people as humans, saw them with a story, and he offered them hospitality. He offered them himself, right? And in many cases today, I think what ends up happening is we end up replacing the dinner table with a screen, right? And so we don't see the humanity in people. We don't sit across and hear people's stories, but we become names on a screen, right? Become people of a party, names on a screen, members of a group, obstacle to our comfy lives. And we fail to see each other as image bearers, as people. We We fail to see our common humanity, right? But the gospel calls us to welcome the stranger and to show hospitality. So just as we close, what does that look like? You're like, am I supposed to pick a guy up off the street today? Is that what he's asking me to do? Like, what does this look like, right? I just want to look at where and I want to look at who and then we'll pray. And I want to start with where. I love Tim Keller as he's talking about this. He says that we all have a home space, right? We all have a home space. Whether you're in high school and you live in your parents' basement 
Whether you have a house, whether you have an apartment, whatever it is, we all have this home space, right? This place of respite, of comfort, of relaxation, of safety, whatever that is, whatever is our place where we kick our shoes off and this is my time, whatever that is. It's inviting people into that place. Maybe your home, like I said, it may be your lunch table, favorite coffee shop, friend gatherings, whatever that is. It's inviting someone into that. I think of my wife has um, some extended family that we spend holidays with and, and to the, I think they're my cousins, I don't know. But they, we have, we get together for a lot of different holidays. And it's so cool because a lot of different holidays, they have all these, all the families over there, there's like 97 kids running around. And there's always, every single time, there's like three people you've never seen in your life. And it's different people at every single meal right? And it's so cool. We'll get together to pray before the meal. And before we pray, like, this is Janice and Roger. They, uh, they're new to the church, had nowhere to go near the state. So we brought them on over for dinner. What's up, Janice and Roger? It's great, right? Or once in a while, this is Fred. He's the neighbor and his wife just passed. And so he's kind of his first Christmas by himself. So we invited him over. Like, what's up, Fred? And then, then their kids start bringing over their neighbors. And it's such a cool picture of hospitality, right? I also have a, a friend named, named Eli. He lives in New York City. We used to play in a band together. He comes into town once or twice a year. And the four of us who are in the band, we get together and we go to Steak and Shake and we have lunch together, dinner together. You can't eat Steak and Shake before 7 o'clock p.m. You got to eat it after. But we go to Steak and Shake together. And every time, Eli has someone with him, maybe a family member they had not seen in a while, and maybe an old friend, and maybe somebody that he met in New York who moved back here that he wants to bring, whatever it is. Eli's always got somebody with him showing hospitality by inviting it into his home space, into this friend group, inviting the stranger in. And I know what you may be thinking because I'm a psychic, but you may be thinking my house is a, I'm not, that was a joke. I just never know if you know I'm joking or not. I'm not going back to that church with the psychic pastor. That was weird. I'm not. But what, what many of you may be thinking is that you're like, my house is always a mess. I live in my parents' basement. I'm just in this small apartment. When we, when we upgrade, when we get our bigger house, then we'll start doing this. Like there's all these different kinds of things for reasons that we don't want to practice hospitality or think that we can't right now, right? But it's interesting. You look at the gospels, you look at the story of Jesus, you never hear about his house. It's not like Jesus, you know, invited the disciples over to his condo. Like you don't see that Jesus is inviting himself over, Right? We see Jesus extending hospitality even with no home of his own. I remember uh, back when, when Ethan, you guys know Ethan Taylor, one of our interns, he, uh, he was early on, he kind of came over for someone's house at dinner and uh, I don't think he could cook because he showed up with a, a tray, a beautiful tray of cosmic brownies still wrapped in the plastic. You know, just sh- invite yourself over and show up with some food. Whatever, it's fine. Either way. But we see Jesus inviting himself over and we see him being both, both the guest but we also see Jesus being the host in these situations, right? Because we see Jesus extending hospitality, giving away of himself. Because I think that hospitality is first and foremost a heart posture. I don't think it's a matter of the means you have or the square footage or how good of home ec you did in high school. I think it's a, ma- it's a heart posture. And we see that displayed through Christ. I love a guy, a pastor named Sam Alberry says this, your home may be one of the most significant weapons in God's arsenal that you possess. Your kitchen table may be every bit as significant, I would say more significant than the pulpit in making known the love of Christ. I love that. So you figure out what your where is, where this happens at in your home space. Now think about this. As we talk about the who, I know it's like, am I supposed to pick up? Am I supposed to pick up a guy? Who are you talking about, right? 
I don't know who this is in your life, right? But I think we can get there by just thinking through a couple different things. I know this is simple. But I think it begins with prayer, right? That, that we might have eyes to see, ears to hear, that we might see people the way that Christ saw them. I think that Jesus saw people different. I don't think he saw Levi and was like, ew. You know, I don't think he saw Zacchaeus and was like, why is that dude in a tree? You know, but he saw people differently. That we might pray that our hearts might be aligned with the heart of Christ, that we might see people in the same way. As we think about the who, I think that, that we will see people differently when we slow down. As I was talking uh, with Adam this week, what's interesting is that all these different practices that we're talking about, they aren't just kind of like, you're not at the grocery store and you're like, ooh, I'll have a little bit of community, a little small slice of silence, fasting, no thanks, you know. But it's not just these random things that we pick, right? But as we talk about feasting together, we're like, man, it looks like community and it's a way that we can celebrate and it's a way that we can practice generosity and it's a way that we can come together. And how do we get there? How do we align our minds to see people the way Christ said? Well, we have to withdraw and be with him and meditate on his word and come to the Father in prayer. It's a whole new ecosystem of the way that we live. Because we live in a world that's like, I got to get, I'm like, who has time for hospitality, right? I got to get to work, got to get my stuff done, got to get my double cheeseburger, got to post on Facebook. Like we have so much going on, right? In this ecosystem, in this way of living, that Jesus is calling us into a new way of life, a new ecosystem, right? A new way that we live. And in this, it's what does it look like to slow down, to put our phone down, to put aside the busyness, to put aside our busy schedules and just listen to people, to stop and see people, to stop and pray, God, who is it in my life that you might have me invite to the table? An old friend, someone who, who's recently walked through loss, someone who's walking through a new season, someone who's recently moved to the area. This isn't a way to pick up chicks, guys. Don't do that. Don't do that. A date is a different spiritual practice. We'll talk about that later, right? I think someone, a, a way to think about the who is who is someone that your heart is heavy for? It's, it's good, but often you have conversations with people and you're like, ah, man, I'm sorry you're walking through that. That's tough. And you're like, I'll be praying for you. And that's great. But what, what does it look like to be like, is there a way that we can connect with that person, invite them over, go out to dinner, make something for them, serve them in some way? Is there a way that we can extend welcome to them because they're going through the season, right? It's just looking at situations different. And I think we see that as we continue to invite the presence of Jesus into our lives. Rosaria Butterfield, she wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with the House Key. She has an amazing story. Write down her name, her book title, Rosaria Butterfield. It's worth checking out. But she says this, Hospitality, biblically speaking, takes strangers and makes them neighbors, takes neighbors and makes them the family of God. As, as we, I, we'll just, we'll close. I'm gonna close the quick story and we'll pray. I think, I'm starting to, you know, get to the point of my pastoral thing where I say we're going to end here for like 15 minutes straight. But really, I want to tell a story that we're going to end. As I was thinking about this, I was trying to think like, man, when is a time that my heart was so moved by hospitality that I can make everyone cry? We'll go home and bake cookies for everybody, right? And I'm thinking of these different things and like, man, what is a different story? And I thought of this. Sometimes I think we can overcomplicate this, right? We, we have this picture of hospitality with the candles and the spare room and the, the cookies and all this stuff, right? And we can make it into this big thing. But I thought about this. When I was growing up in high school, I was the drummer of our bands, which means if you were the drummer, everyone comes to your house because you're not going to carry your drums to someone else's house, right? Which means that at my parents' house, there was always terrible music coming from the basement all the time. 
And my parents' basement was always full of, of new friends, people they didn't know, people that cussed too loud were there in my basement, people that were sleeping on their couch, terrible music, all this stuff. And as I was growing up through high school, that was kind of just the, the culture of our basement, right? It was just people there all the time making noise. We didn't always know who they were. But what I saw with that was I saw my parents in a very simple way opening their basement to strangers. Saw in a very simple way my parents opening their cupboards to strangers, right? I saw in a very simple way my parents having conversations with some of my friends that, that didn't have parents in that way, that couldn't have these conversations with that parent. Being loved by my parents in ways that they weren't loved by their parents. Different ways I saw my parents express hospitality to these kids and people in their basement by opening their home to them. And you know what it was? It was radically ordinary hospitality. I think that's what Jesus calls us to. He's not saying like you should build a condo in your backyard and invite everybody from Akron to come stay there. I think it's a heart posture. What does it look like to invite someone around the table? just as we have been invited to sit around the table of God. I love that hospitality takes strangers and makes them neighbors, takes neighbors and makes them into the family of God. Can we pray together? God, so thankful that you have made your way to us, that you have brought us in, that your love has compelled us to come and have a seat at your table. And Jesus, we acknowledge that there is nothing that we bring. There's no, no position that we hold that allows us to sit there, that gives us the credibility to sit there, Jesus, but it's your blood and your sacrifice in our place that gives us a seat at the table. So we sit humbly, we sit in humility at your table with you. And Jesus, I pray that in whatever way it is for each one of us, that you would help us just to, to start fleshing out hospitality in our lives. It's gonna look different for every family, every individual in this room. But God, I pray that you would continually just shake this within our hearts that we might see the love of the stranger, the love of the lost, the love of those who are in need of your love and grace, that we may see them the way that you see them. And that you may use us and our tables and our home spaces to invite people to sit with us and listen to their story, listen to their hurt. And in doing so, offer the love of Christ through that. Jesus, we gather just under your grace. We gather under your forgiveness and we're thankful that you have brought us in. It's all because of Jesus alone that we pray. Amen.